0: I was never a conventional kid. I wasn't doing things in the normal way. I was running away from all of that mm. so that I could be a punk rocker. I made five bucks an hour. Okay. <laughs> and, and you know what? It's like I won the lottery. I was like, yes!
1: This is Open Account, where we have really honest conversations about money with the people who use it. I'm Sujin Park, and together with Umqua Bank... We've created this podcast to share our stories about making, losing, and living with money because we believe talking about it helps us have a better relationship with it. And there are all sorts of reasons why we don't feel comfortable talking about it. Oftentimes, it's because people feel there's a right and a wrong way to manage money, a set of rules we should follow, a socially acceptable way of doing things that doesn't quite fit in with how you see the world. But here's a question. Do we need to follow the rules when it comes to money? Meaning, if bankers and brokers and even our parents tell us to do things a certain way, are we crazy if we don't stick to them? Or is it possible to make our own rules and manage our money in a way that doesn't fit conventional wisdom, but fits our lives, and find success in that? Megan Jasper says yes. She is the CEO of Sub Pop Records, the label that launched bands like Nirvana and Soundgarden and pretty much broke all the rules on the road to becoming one of music's most successful long shots. First, a formal hello,
2: Megan, for joining us here in the studio. Um... Let's give everyone an overview of what your official title is and what you do, and then let's really
0: kind of break that down into all the nuances of who you are. My name is Megan Jasper. I live in Seattle. I work at Sub Pop Records currently as their CEO. So I'm the kid oftentimes at the club watching a band, and I have a bottle of water in my hand because I have to wake up early in the mornings. Is it more than 30 years of Sub Pop or close to 30 years? Next year, we will be celebrating 30 years of Sub Pop. So I've been at the label for 22 years. The time in between my two runs at Sub Pop, I felt still like I was in the family.
2: How, having been sort of on the inside for so many years and created what Sub Pop is, what does it mean
0: to you? What it means is something that has changed over so many years for me, because um, I think when you're early on Mm -hmm. in a business, it's really about a select number of artists and maybe even a small number of employees. When I first went to Sub Pop, we were working with bands like Mudhoney, Nirvana. Uh, We had released Soundgarden Records. When I went back to Sub Pop in 1998, we were working with bands like um, Sebado, Sunny Day Real Estate. Uh, we eventually began working with The Shins, Iron and Wine, The Postal Service, Flight of the Concords, Band of Horses, Fleet Foxes. But decades later all of those artists have created this mural that consists of, like, thumbprints. And all of the thumbprints are songs and records and personalities. And all of the employees have added that. And then all of the people that we deal with, our contacts, the people who manufacture our records, they all become family. Mm. Did you ever
2: imagine... That this universe would expand as big and as long, when you started—I mean, way back in the beginning, when it was
0: kind of a mess. Yeah, it was the best mess in the world. It <laughs> was, was it a so was it fun. the best mess as you were in it too? Oh yeah. yeah, it was complete chaos. It was, but it was the greatest chaos imaginable. Um, Explain that. Well, I would go to work. There would be people, debt collectors calling constantly, there would be artists calling. But within that chaos, there were really wonderful conversations with artists, with my coworkers, and it was this weird world where it really, truly felt like anything was possible in a day. I mean, was there a vision that
2: early on, or was it just kind of chasing this
0: this vibe, this fun, this energy, you know? It was both. Mm -hmm. So, So there was a vision that Bruce and John had that they would joke about, and they called it world domination. Jonathan Poneman and Bruce Pavitt were two individuals who had both relocated to Seattle, Washington. They were both complete music geeks. They were promoting shows, writing for magazines, But they wanted to do more. And so they started a little company at the time. It was just the two of them called Sub Pop Records. They were really awesome, smart dirtbags who loved music and wanted to start a record label. So there was a vision, but they made that vision almost seem like a joke. And then
2: in the middle of this, there's you. How old were you when you first got
0: your first job at Sub Pop? So I was either 21 or 22. Okay. I think I was 22, and I got an internship. I walked in. Um, I'd met Bruce and John when I was on a tour a few months earlier. I told them I wanted to move to Seattle. They said, if you do, come by Sub Pop. My first day in Seattle, I went to Sub Pop. It was super busy. They said, ah, come back tomorrow. I went back tomorrow, and I said, can I have an internship. And they asked me if I knew how to work a phone system. And I i mean, I knew how to talk on the phone. So I said yes. And shortly after, I was the receptionist. Right. At that point, 22, so
2: you probably just graduated college, right? I guess coming into that, how do you know when to make a decision that, yes, this chaos is going to work for me? Or like, oh, no. Like, I need to get up and... Some bills and be logical, and you know, because there, yeah. you do have those two sides to you. So,
0: I had some bills, they weren't big at the time, but at that point in my life, I thought it was expected of me that I was going to be a school teacher. Mm. Everyone in my family is a school teacher, they um, are teachers, they're principals. I have two uncles who are lawyers, and then we had three nuns in the family. And I knew for sure I didn't want to be a nun. I also think I was trying to escape doing that. Right. I loved music. Music was the place that made me feel at home. It was the community that I found myself feeling like I belonged in. I never felt like I belonged anywhere else mm. until punk rock. And then I, I felt like I had found my people and my space. In a way that felt so important. So, to to go into this place like Sub Pop, and to have this community, mm. even if it's a small community, I felt like these are my people, and this is where I need to be, and I will make it work. How much money were you making at that point? As a receptionist at Sub Pop, I made five bucks an hour, <laughs> okay. and and you know what? It's like I won the lottery. I was like, yes, oh, uh! I you know it wasn't really much money at all, but I knew I could make it work. How how do you make five dollars an hour work? Well, you work backwards. So you figure, what's my rent? My rent was probably a couple hundred bucks a month. Yeah. Um, utilities. How much food do I need? It probably equals how much can I afford? Can I afford a couple of beers on the weekend? Um, All of that I could totally afford. I made it work. So there was never a
2: point where, you know, during that time, trying to make it and paying your bills and trying to pursue this kind of gut feeling that you had, that
0: you could either rely on your family for money... So our household was pretty interesting in that my parents, although they both had jobs and they both excelled in their careers, it all sounds far more stable than it actually was. Our household was pretty unstable in the sense that in our house, there was alcoholism. And my parents, although they made money... Our finances were so up and down. I never remember feeling like we had financial stability. Why would their finances be up and down? My parents were great in a million ways. They weren't great at budgeting money. Mm. But I'll tell you what we did budget that they did a really good job at. And it shaped how I do like financial planning now. Is I remember as a little kid, my parents saying... We're going to save our money and we're going to take a cruise. We're going to go from Florida to the Bahamas. We ended up going. It took us a year or two years to save up the money. And every Sunday, we'd do the comic strips and books. And he had really funny word games that he would play with us that were a blast. But he, at the end of it, he would tell us how much money we had for our vacation. And even if it was like, 5 or 10 dollars extra the the amount always went up mm. and and neither of my parents ever touched that money and it was awesome because I learned that if you just put a little bit aside you get to where you need to go yeah so it's interesting because
2: you grew up in a house like you said that felt very unstable to you both yeah. financially and with addiction yeah um, your parents are, are school teachers. Yeah. You are headed down that path. It seems like that's a logical next step. You um, decided after leaving college. Yes. Right. Yep. To Follow a band, Dinosaur yes. Jr., across the country. Now, a good girl from a <laughs> from a good family of teachers, wanting to be a teacher from Amherst College, um, decides what. To follow, I mean, did that – that didn't seem like a terrible risk or a huge leap of, you know, faith into, you know, chaos? Yeah. Or
0: So the funny thing is when I was in Worcester, I ran away from home a lot. I was a runaway kid. When I got older, I was still running away. But I wasn't running away from home. I was running away from the expectations – that kind of hovered over me and felt like this incredible weight. So almost immediately after getting out of college, I actually bought a one-way ticket to Berlin and I wanted to be near the music there. I loved it. And then I got a phone call from my friend Jay. Jay was, still is, in a band called Dinosaur Junior. And he said, they're heading to Amsterdam and they need a roadie. And so I was like, oh shit, I can totally do that. So I took the train. I went to Amsterdam. I did the European tour with them. I loved it. I was totally in heaven. So you were a roadie
2: with a Dinosaur Jr. on on the road in Europe. I mean, I'm sure you weren't staying in first-class hotels and flying private planes. And were you getting paid? I, how did you survive in Europe?
0: Yeah, I, not a lot. But I was paid... Um, We had per diems. And so I would get so many, you know, like a handful of dollars or whatever currency every day. And at the clubs, they usually had food for us. So it was, again, one of these situations where I was kind of just making it work. I had my rent paid in Berlin. I didn't need a ton of money to live. And I was making enough to live. In that critical moment looking back
2: between deciding, okay, I've graduated school. I'm going to get an apartment in Berlin and follow music. How did you get to that decision? I want to know how one makes those kinds of decisions in life that alters the entire
1: course of
0: where you're headed. So I knew that if I found a place to live in Berlin, it would be enough to anchor me where I could stay for as long as possible, meaning until my money ran out. That was a really important factor. Hmm. And beyond that, I remember uh, being at a party. My friend from Dinosaur gave me the phone number of a woman named Maria. He said she's kind of like female Elvis. I called her up. She said, you will come over to my house. I was like, okay. So I went to her house. In Berlin. In Berlin, Mm -hmm. she opened the door and my mind was blown. She looked like Elvis Presley. She had a white suit on with studs, except she was like skinny and super petite. And she was so nice to me. And she said, there is a party in two days. You will come to party. I was like, okay. So I went to the party and I met as many people as I could. And one of them needed a roommate in this apartment and uh, and so they invited me to yeah. be their roommate. This is exactly what I need and this will give me more time than I would have otherwise.
2: I feel like you never even really considered being a teacher. Let's be honest. <laughs> no. That yeah. now I'm like mm, it, <laughs> it pretty much sounds like that was a lie. Oh yeah, so I and get I'm, it.
0: I'm never going to find that in a classroom.
2: Okay, so let's go back a little bit. So you are at Subpop You're a receptionist. Yes. Okay, so talk a little bit about that time um, in context of what was happening at Sub Pop and then what happened to you.
0: So at Sub Pop, the label was, in some ways, it appeared like it was doing really, really well. And we had two big records that were going to come out. One was the Mudhoney record, Every Good Boy Deserves Fudge. That was like... The Shining Star record. When that record came out, it would solve all of our financial issues. We could pay our Amex bill. It was going to be awesome. The phone wouldn't go off. And that didn't totally happen. The second record was not a Sub Pop record, but it was a record that Sub Pop negotiated points with, which was Nirvana's Nevermind. I got laid off right beforehand. And I remember thinking... I had an early copy of that record and I knew how great it was and we knew it would be huge, but we didn't know what huge meant. We just thought huge meant it'll do great. Not like this is going to be the record of a generation and this is going to be a record that brings a lot of money to sub pop. And that all happened, but that part happened without me. Life was good, but I got my kick in the ass. I ran as far as I could go. I found my wall. It was called unemployment. I ran straight into it. <laughs> and um and I just thought, "All right, so this is this is where I take the path that takes me to the classroom." And I thought that means I'm going to end up going back to the East Coast. I'm going to have to spend this year applying for graduate school. Um, but I'm going to take this year and really live in Seattle. I'm going to finish discovering things about the city that I'd fallen in love with. So I had little jobs that got me through. During my free time, I tried to go someplace in Seattle or go for a bike ride where I hadn't been before or find a store or something. Within months, I had fallen even more deeply in love with Seattle because I was discovering, Mm -hmm. like, these things that I didn't know about it, little neighborhoods, um, people even. And I just thought, I can't go to the East Coast. Like, how do I leave this? And then all of a sudden, I was walking from downtown back to Queen Anne where I lived. And I'm not kidding you. It was like a major epiphany. And all of a sudden after all of this time occurred to me that i could create my own path and i could do my own thing and i didn't have to be a school teacher so i ran home and i call i remember calling my dad calling my mom i called my friends i was like i need to start looking for a job in music
2: wow because <laughs> i was wondering you answered my question Like how you get fired from music and you don't go running to this, you know, very stable plan B and how you go back. You double down on music. But now I that was the whole story arc of of why you wanted to pursue it.
0: My getting laid off was one of the best gifts I'd ever been given because it threw me into a space where I I chose my path Mm. consciously instead of just having it in front of me. So when
2: you were unemployed yeah. before you got your next gig, how much money were you living on at
0: that time? Oh my god, <laughs> so little <laughs> because the way it worked then, they took my last 3 weeks or months of salary and then you I got 75% of that. So so you're making like $4 an hour. Yeah, well by the time I <laughs> yeah. left I was like living super well making $7.25. <laughs> so I made after taxes like a fraction of that. Yeah. Uh, Stressful at the you know, are you stressed at that time? I mean like no, I actually felt really happy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't I remember having to be really very mindful of my finances. But also, I remember feeling very happy, and I had everything I needed. I never took buses. I didn't have a car. I rode my bike everywhere. That was my transportation. It was a frugal life, but I lived pretty well, meaning I felt very happy. Yeah. Okay, so
2: now you get your first serious job in music. You got – you. Put a resume together. There's intention yep. behind this. Yep. You are going for it. Oh, yeah. Okay,
0: so what is the
2: job that you land at?
0: So the job I got was the Northwest representative for Caroline Records. And I started at $14,500 a year. Mm. I could not believe how much money I was making. <laughs> it felt huge. And what year is this? This was... 92.
2: In 1992. Yep. So you were there for how many years or how long before coming back to Sub Pop the second time?
0: I I was at Caroline for one year. It felt so dysfunctional. I quit. I went to another company that was similar, but it was a startup. It was called ADA. And I worked there for about five years. Mm. And I was the Northwest sales manager. And then something started eating at me. And I remember calling Jonathan Poneman, who remained one of my close friends. And I said to him, I love my job. I love what I do. I love helping the labels that we sell. And I'm dying to be closer to the creative process. And he came back a while later and said, Would you want to run the marketing department? and that much responsibility was daunting but mm. i had to say yes and i grabbed that job i never thought i would go back to sub pop yeah ever but i i needed that little bit of
2: chaos mm. and it didn't feel like a risk to you after having built 5 years this very now at this point a very stable career
0: it was a huge risk. Mm. And everyone told me that I should rethink what I was doing. I had more people tell me I was crazy Mm. than I did tell me to go for it. Why? Because SubPop was not in a good financial space. SubPop had laid off so many people in the past year or two years at that point, and really good people.
2: How was sub-pop losing money at a time that it was gaining more and more
0: fame and these bigger acts? So um, the interesting thing with music is that something can appear to be really big or um, successful, but that doesn't mean that it's profitable. So it might be that you see a certain band or a movie everywhere in the world. But what you're not thinking is how much that advertising costs or what these marketing opportunities actually cost so that it can be everywhere. And just because something is doing well does not mean you're making money off of it. You could be spending a lot of time, especially if you don't have proper budgets in place that you're honoring. (laughs) Um, But the company was hurting and it was a huge risk. But if I went back there There were two things. One is, um, if I went back there, I could work with Jonathan again. Mm -hmm. I love Jonathan. He's been a good friend of mine for so long. And I knew Sub Pop's potential. Mm. I knew that it was underperforming. Mm -hmm. I knew it had greater potential than what it was showing in that moment.
2: You know, a funny thought just entered my mind. I was like, is she describing a music label or an ex-boyfriend, right?
1: <laughs> well, I
0: love that you put it that way, because I will tell you that the most profound lessons I have learned in life, I have learned from Sub Pop, and Sub Pop has played this crazy ass role in my life that is absolutely the equivalent of a human being. Yeah. <laughs> So
2: now you've got a team, you've got budgets, managing. It, this isn't something you had ever really done to this capacity before. No. Okay, how how did you even begin to learn this and
0: do it well? Um, I for sure learned as I went, but I didn't know how to do company budgets. That was terribly daunting and overwhelming thinking about it. And sub-pop at this point hadn't really... Been
2: finan- there was no financial system there. That's why it kept, yeah, you know, the the rug kept getting you know slipped out from under them, so to speak.
0: Yeah, wow. we didn't have real budgets. Okay, and and the, Which, that's crazy to me. It, it is crazy, <laughs> and the budgets that we had that we did that some people tried to put together, they weren't based on sales. <gasps> so. I thought, okay, well, let's figure out conservatively what all of these records might sell and then how much money might be coming in through those sales after we pay our distribution fees and, you know, all of that. Then what's our overhead? Like, let's subtract that. So that's how we have to budget. We'll just do it conservatively. And Jonathan, I think, got excited that I was starting to do these budgets. And so then he jumped in. And together, we ended up, like, making real budgets that actually worked. They were working. It was really exciting. And it made me love doing it. Who knew?
2: Because this is based on your personal – it's like you basically built SubPops finances based on things that you've learned – I mean, way back when, when you were getting a first apartment in Berlin or touring, you know, after college. So you brought this kind of instinctual but road-tested budget experience. Who would have thought that that whole time what you were doing was going to some sort
0: of business school for, you know, music Yeah. Well, that's exactly it. It's like there's common sense that you can apply to so many situations. And... You know, my reality is I was never a conventional kid. I wasn't doing things in the normal way. I was running away from all of that mm. so that I could be a punk rocker. But I realized that, like, I guess I never approached any of the business stuff in a conventional way. I didn't know the conventional ways. So I kind of chose non-conventional ways Without knowing I was doing that, do you think coming from such an
2: unstable um, family and and childhood in some ways
0: helped you relate to this sub pop universe? Definitely, because you know we had a lot of wonderful days too. But my family we were also very good at fighting, and so when you grow up in an environment like that. You have to be able to walk into a room and read a situation fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. And it taught me how to do that, Mm -hmm. how to get a hit and trust a hit and respond to a hit. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, and I've said this to people before, my friends, when we talk about similar things, like that is one of the greatest gifts I could ever have walked away with in Growing up in that environment, because that is what taught me to trust my gut. Mm-hmm. I had to trust my
2: gut. And when you were creating this financial system for Sub Pop, which then went on to obviously be the foundation for this universe that is now Sub Pop, thirty years later, yeah, is that strange to think back on that? That that kind of practical approach or unconventional approach then went on to build this huge, massive
0: ecosystem? Um, I would say it seems so appropriate, Mm. because we don't do our business in a cookie-cutter way. There's a path for every record, and it's different for Mm. every record, and it's different for every artist. Nothing works the same for everybody. Mm. So it makes sense, when I think about that, that that also applies to how we do business, that what works for an insurance company isn't going to be what works for this weird creative environment. It's never a straight line to the bottom line. It is always a circuitous route. I think that most independent labels have their own version of that because all of these companies, Mm. they weren't created by business people. They were created by music people and music lovers. And so the business lessons that we all learn as a group, they're they're hard lessons, they're weird lessons, and then you just have to promise yourself that you're not gonna learn the same lesson twice. So we're talking a lot about kind of this
2: delicate balance between chasing a dream and living in this very real world of paying bills and practical realities. And you chased a dream to work in music. Is it strange to be on the other side of that now, you know, somewhat in control or having a hand, a heavy hand in someone else's fate when it comes to their chasing a dream?
0: Um, So I feel like I for sure chased my dream and I for sure feel like I'm living my dream. And then I feel like it is this mind blowing privilege to help other people realize their dreams in the process. So it makes, and we, I think we all feel that way at work. It's a very mission driven uh, mindset that we're in, and we, where we serve the art and we serve the artists. And if we are making their dreams come true, if we're giving them a shot at being musicians and not being school teachers. Then we're doing our jobs well.
1: The way Megan tells her story is pretty great because she basically breaks down her evolution as the CEO of Sub Pop into anecdotes about money, the life lessons that prepared her for running one of music's most iconic labels. And it's one of those stories that, if told while happening, would seem both charmed and maybe kind of insane because it's almost a 100% risk with no clear financial reward. For Megan, she had to trust her instincts. If she failed, it was a big one. But success meant not only putting money in her pocket, but being a part of history. And ultimately, that's what makes it worth it and why some of us chase dreams over dollars.
2: Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, and stay tuned for a lot more. And we want to know what you think. You can be part of this conversation by giving us your feedback or telling us your story at made 2 account or on social media. We're at Umqua Bank on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Open Account is created by Umpqua Bank and produced in collaboration with Slate Group Studios.